Kids left this morning, and there's a reason for that. I want to tell you from the get-go, this morning's message is different than normal for me. Um, If you're on Facebook at all, you might have seen this morning that I said this morning's message is rated PG. Um, And we have a special children's church this morning for that reason. Um, We're going to be talking this morning about a topic we don't normally talk about in church in a corporate gathering like this, but we need to. It's a topic that Jesus um, brought to the surface, and it's it's going to be one that I think, I hope, will provide some perspective for us and some helps for us along the way. So it's really the topic of lust and pornography is what we're talking about. So before I get into that, I want to say this. This week, this week I got um, to my office and I found this. And I need to, to acknowledge that I found this in my office this week. A box of Ritz crackers. <laughs> now, to some of you who have not been here for this series, um, this means nothing to you except, you know, what's wrong with the guy up front talking about Ritz crackers in his office. Here's the deal. About three weeks ago when we started this series called These Words, I talked about this idea that Jesus rolled out to the disciples there, that those who are following him, he said to, to the disciples, here's who you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And talked about this imagery. And I said when I grew up in Barbados that I looked forward to people coming to bring Ritz crackers. And when I got here to the States and I got, got married and, and had Ritz crackers and then one time low sodium Ritz crackers showed up in the house and I was just about to throw up after I ate them. And I needed salt. We talked about this thing that salt is the light of the world and salt makes things taste good. So I just want to say to whoever gave me the Ritz crackers, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And I also want to say there's other things I like. (laughs) And we can talk about that list if you want to. So I'm just making myself available to to you. Uh, But no, I really appreciate that that gesture. But this this idea that Jesus begins here of the salt of of the earth and the light of the world is one that uh, is found in Matthew 5. We're going to get there in a minute. But Jesus is speaking, just to set this up, he's speaking to a group of people who are gathered to hear him, people who are trying to figure out who is this guy, and then, and then in relation, what should I do about that? Who am I, potentially, in relation to him? And Jesus says, if you want to be kingdom people, here's what you need to know your identity is. You're, first of all, you're the salt of the earth. This is how you need to see yourself. And you're the light of the world. This is who kingdom people are. They make things taste good around them. And they shine for other people to see. This is you. This is who you are. And then he goes on to say this, because he knew that this reputation was getting out there, that he said, some of you have heard, or or some of you think that I've come to abolish the law because this teaching is so new. Some of you think that I've come to do away with the Old Testament. I've come to do away with the old way of relating to God. And he'll say to the people there, I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish the things that we've known about relating to God, but I've come to fulfill them. I'm the fulfillment of all the ways that you used to relate to God. And then he goes on to say this, because the people then are thinking, they're thinking, they're sitting there thinking, okay, you're fulfilling all of this, but you say some funny things. And he says this, you know your Pharisees, the people who teach you religiously, spiritually, you know how righteous they are, taking the Ten Commandments and turning them into 613 commandments to try to follow every particular aspect of holiness they can possibly imagine. He says to the people sitting there, okay, you want to know who I am? You want to know my teaching? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you don't have a part in the kingdom of heaven. At which point, most people, if they're honest, are sitting there feeling lost and helpless as if this is possible. 
How in the world am I supposed to surpass the teachers, surpass the greatest religious leaders in the world that I know? The people who, as a hobby, memorize hundreds of pages of the Bible. How am I supposed to do that? And this is where Jesus turns that, and he says, surpassing, he doesn't quite say it, but he gets there, surpassing is not going farther than the Pharisees, that is adding rule upon rule upon rule. Surpassing the Pharisees means that you go deeper rather than farther. Surpassing the Pharisees means that you go deeper to understand the heart, not farther simply to change your behavior. And to drive that home, he offers six principles, if you will, six different um, issues that we deal with. Last week, we talked about the first, and that is, Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, anyone who's angry at his brother is guilty of the fire of hell. And today, he's going to say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm going to tell you that anyone who's ever looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart with her. Now, why does Jesus even begin with these? And here's what I think. If you're still in the setting, Jesus speaking to these people in Galilee, all these people gathered, they have been deeply, deeply influenced by a religious system that has taught them outward conformity. Not that we can relate to that, but they can. It has taught them, here's what you do to look like you're following God. Now, if you've ever experienced this phenomenon, it, it is, here's the phenomenon. Jesus is, if you, if you uh, imagine Jesus in this case, uh, almost like an EMT responding to a, a, a 911 call. And there's someone who um, looks dead. They are not breathing. And the EMT will get the paddles out. And they'll take the paddles, and then you've seen it in the, the movies, you've seen it on TV sitcoms as well. They'll take the paddles, and they'll put it on the chest of the person who's gone to provide an electrical shock to their system that will restart their entire heart, re- restart their entire breathing capacity as well. And it's an attempt to... Well, it didn't work. One more time, you kind of rub them together, and then the drama, the music builds in the background, crescendo, and then are they going to come back or not? Boom, they give another hit. This is, in a way what Jesus is trying to do right here. Because those who have come, their hearts have been deadened to the things of God by the religious teachings of the Pharisees. They're coming and listening to Jesus and they can't even hear what he means because they're dead on the table. Because all they think religion is and holiness is is following the outward conformity to the law. And so they'll say things like, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. Other people do bad stuff, but I don't. In other words, other people murder, but I don't. Other people commit adultery, but I don't. Picking and choosing the things that are the most egregious offenses against the law and then comparing ourselves to that and saying, I'm innocent. Which is why Jesus begins, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm telling you, if you want your heart to be shocked alive to the kingdom life, boom, let me hit you with this. If you've ever been angry at somebody, you're just as guilty. Let me bring your heart back to life but I don't commit adultery. I haven't slept with someone else. And Jesus takes the paddles and hits our heart again. 
and says, let me bring your heart back to life. Here's what God actually wants from you. If you've ever looked at a woman lustfully and thought in your heart, in your mind, you've already committed adultery. You're guilty. (laughs) And the people say, when is this over? (laughs) Whose idea was it to come hear this guy speak? His standards are too high. They are impossible to meet. And this is where we find ourselves now as we come here this morning. Guilty. In fact, I don't think there's a person in here who is not guilty as charged before Jesus on this issue. Who could ever say, I've never had a passing lustful thought about a man or a woman. I don't think there's a soul in here who can say that. And yet Jesus holds this ideal standard up. And he says, if you want to participate in the kingdom of heaven, here's the ideals. Let me shock your heart again into seeing the ideals of God. And how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Some of our default response is quite simply to reject it, to rebel against it and say, the standard is too high. I'm not even going to go down that road. It's not for me. Another response is to try self-righteousness and get closer to the standard than somebody else and compare ourselves to this person who fell into adultery and they're sinful and I don't do that, I just look and just get further down the pike. But what we've said, what I've tried to hold out to us is this model here. Kingdom people, first of all, aim for the king's ideal. Aim for this really impossible ideal cannot let it go. But kingdom people also live in the realities of this broken world. We aim over here for what Jesus teaches, but then we live over here in the reality of where we find ourselves. And in the space between, this is where we grow. We find room to grow in the space between where we exist and where we should live, where the king's ideal is. And so here's my hope for you this morning. As we think about just these words, these these verbs highlighted, to help you think about this, aim, live, grow. I aim for the best, I live in reality, and I grow in between. Here's my hope for you this morning on this issue in particular. Um, number one, that our hearts can be brought back to life. This actually matters, guys. This, this actually matters. You, you don't need me to tell you what kind of culture we live in in terms of the saturation of sex in our society. You don't need me to convince you of that reality. You live it. I live in. And so it deadens us to to the reality of what Jesus says here. So I want to reawaken in us this reality that there is no closet in your heart. There's no room, there's no thought life in your heart that is not open to God's judgment. There's no place to tuck into your brain, into your heart, into your schedule things that no one else will see, that no one else will ever know. God is saying, I'm aware of your heart. That closet doesn't exist for me. So I want us to be reawakened to that, but I also want us to realize this. My hope for us this morning is this, that there actually becomes some hope for you and hope for me. What does it look like? And is it even possible, is it even possible to grow, to grow on this issue from where I live to where God wants me to be? 
I want to provide for you some hope this morning. That this thing does not need to control your heart. It doesn't need to be a point where you cannot speak to anyone about this. This does not need to be a secret shame and guilt that we carry around anymore. This is my hope for us this morning. Okay. So, with that being said, that being said, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one near you in the pew. In the pew Bible, there's two different kinds of pew Bibles. Um, the old one, this is on page, uh, it's a little bigger, a little fatter, page 937. The new one, a little skinnier, it's page 786, 937 or 786. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you this morning. You're welcome to take that with you um, and read more about Jesus' teachings, who in the world he is, and how you can interact with that um, as you go here, okay? So Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. And the passage, quite honestly, is very self-explanatory, but let's jump into it. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, what's Jesus saying? To be honest, it's not that difficult to understand, is it? It's very plain. However, I'll say this. There are some people who take this literally, I have to say. Um, And some of that is based on the Greek construction of the clauses, which I'm not going to get into here this morning. But this is not a literal recommendation of Jesus. Most of us know that intuitively, okay? However, some scholars would make a difficult case that Jesus actually means this. The point is the hyperbole is meant to emphasize the seriousness and significance of this. But, but here's the thing. As Joel and I, Pastor Joel and I, were talking about this this week, um, here's one of the subtle realities of this, is that we know, let's take Jesus' teaching seriously, for example. If we were, what Jesus says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. He's saying there, it's as if your eye is causing you to sin. And then he goes on to say, in verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So if you were to play it out, literally, if, if the hand were the cause of sin and the eye is the cause of sin, then we would also believe this, and you would believe this too, that there could be a lot of one-eyed, left-handed people who could still do this. Right? Because the issue is not what's out there or what I see or what I touch. The issue is what's in verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his eye, in his hand. Right? You know the word. In his heart. The heart is the issue. That the heart drives the desire for more. That the heart sees and wants and stops and lingers and thinks and considers privately, of course, what could be. And so the issue is not, and here's why this is important. The issue is not, because here's what a lot of people do. When you fall into this, 
When we fall into this, our response is, what structure can I create out there? What systems can I create where I can pull out my right eye? Maybe I need to sell the computer. That would do it. Sell the computer and my problems will go away. But I still live with my heart, right? Okay, uh, get rid of the phone and the problems will go away. But I still live with my heart. Get rid of the TV and... My problems will go away. Sometimes, cutting off the hand like the phone, cutting off the TV, cutting off a subscription, cutting off access can be helpful in the process of dealing with the heart. But alone, it won't work. It's simply a symptom, symptomatic. The heart has to be dealt with. So here's the deal. Jesus puts out this impossible principle as the ideal for us. To come over here and say... If you've ever looked at a woman, or he would also say to women, if you ever looked at a man lustfully, you've already committed adultery with him in your heart. This is for men and women. So this is impossible, right? Okay, Guilty. Guilty is charged. Now what do we do? What do I do? The the teaching is very simple. Have you ever been here? Guilty is charged. So we have to come back, and here's here's what I want to do this morning. We have to come back to where we live. And here's my concern for us, and and I feel a responsibility for this, um, being here now as long as I have. And my my fear for us, at Grace Point in particular, is that we we have not um, been able to nurture a culture yet, um, and I feel a responsibility for this, where we can... um, we can discuss these kinds of difficult sins without a sense of condemnation and shame. Where there's forums, there's opportunities for us to begin to speak honestly that this is a part of us. This is a part of us. We don't like it, but it is. What I want to do now is speak to where we live. I want to speak to what we live in, the kind of context and culture we live in, because I think it's helpful for us to even verbalize and see how significant right now the porn industry is in America, to see how significant and easy it is to get access to exactly what Jesus is talking about. It's helpful for us, I believe, to see Not just the ideal, but where we live now. And so with that in mind, the spirit of that, let me share with you these statistics about pornography and lust. First of all, when we go online, there are approximately 25 million pornographic websites, which a couple years ago accounted for about 12% of the entire um, internet. Uh, Now, these stats I'm giving you are a mixture of two to eight years old from a variety of resources. These stats change uh, quickly. This is the nature of technology now. The stats will change quickly. But it gives a big picture of what's going on. It's a little difficult to grab that, so let's go further. Every second, 28,000 people view pornography online. Every second, 28,000 people are viewing pornography online. Okay? One out of three of those viewers are women. Dude, this is not a male-only problem. That being said, this is a primarily or majority male issue. However, women, I want you to know, you're wrestling with this. You're not alone. You need an opportunity, a forum, just like men do, to process this. You're not alone. One out of three are women. 86% of men will click on pornography if given the chance. 
according to research by, I think, the Safe Media Organization. That's stunning. 86% of men will, if given the opportunity, click on a pornographic website. 70% of 18 to 24-year-old men visit a pornography website once a month. This is in North America. 70% of 18 to 24-year-olds, 18 to 24-year-old men visit once a month. Porn draws in over $13 billion annually, which is, by the way, more than the combined revenues of the National Football League, Major League Baseball, and the NBA together. This is what porn draws in. Continuing, 25% of search engine requests are pornographic. One out of every four searches is related to pornography. Now, Taking this further, the average age for the first exposure to pornography is 11. 11 years old for the first exposure to pornography. Isn't that amazing? Think about the impact that that has on our children. Think about the impact that this has on kids who grow up and see other men and women and then get married. And on that wedding day, are comparing with countless images they've seen what their bride really looks like or what their groom really looks like. The difficulties that it is for a man or a woman to filter out all the stuff they've seen as a kid growing up, which is in part, not in whole, in part for some of the reason why marriage age continues to get pushed back and back and back and back and back further and further and further. Continuing with the children theme, if you will, 96% of teens have internet access and 55% have visited porn sites. So of teenagers, we'd say half of them, little over half of them visit or have visited porn. Taking that further, the largest group of viewers of pornography is children ages 12 to 17. The largest group of people who visit Pornographic websites would be kids, ages 12 to 17. If you're in that age, you don't think you're a kid. Teenagers, students, 12 to 17. Isn't that amazing? We talk about this. Jesus says something like this. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he speaks those words into this context where we live I want to go on to read some comments to you. Paul Fishbein, the, not a believer, the founder of Adult Video News, he said, porn doesn't have a demographic. It goes across all demographics. Damon Brown, author of Porn and Pong, says, it seems so obvious. If we invent a machine, the first thing we're going to do after making a profit is use it to watch porn. When the projector was invented a century ago, the first movies were not of damsels in distress tied to train tracks or Charlie Chaplin-style slapsticks. They were stilted porn shots called stag films. VHS became the dominant standard for VCRs, largely because Sony wouldn't allow pornographers to use Betamax. The movie industry followed porn's lead. DVDs, the internet, cell phones, you name it, pornography planted its big flag there first, or at least shortly thereafter. Now, when we think about our role in this process, there's no, I want to say this, there's no such thing as free porn. There's no such thing as a free moment where we click on porn sites. Every, every click 
And you know this. Every click is tracked, and every click is an apologetic, a reason to continue the process. Every click encourages advertisers to spend more on their sites and continues to encourage the sites to go and go and go and fuel this industry. We are not anonymous in this. We are not guiltless as we click. There are people behind this industry, and I I want you to get a sense of the humanity of it. In 2004, Dr. Marianne Layden was reporting before Senate subcommittee, and this is what she had to say. She said, once the pornography actresses are in the industry, they have high rates of substance abuse, typically alcohol and cocaine, depression, borderline personality disorder. The experience I find most common among the performers is that they have to be drunk, high, or disassociated in order to go to work. Their work environment is particularly toxic, and the terrible work life, work life of the pornography performer is often followed by an equally terrible home life. They have an increased risk of sexually transmitted disease, including HIV, domestic violence, and have about a 25% chance, 25% chance, of making a marriage that lasts as long as three years. And that would be abnormal, that they could be married for more than three years. 75% will not last that long. There's a porn actress, Erin Moore. She admits, quote-unquote, the drugs we binged on were ecstasy, cocaine, marijuana, Xanax, Valium, Vicodin, and alcohol. Tanya Burleson says, guys are punching you in the face, you get ripped. It's never-ending. You're viewed as an object, not as a human with a spirit. People do drugs because they can't deal with the way they're being treated. There are sons and daughters behind what you see, what we see. There are people made in God's image who are impacted by the choices that we make. What happens to our brain as we view pornographic images is really amazing. Dr. Jeffrey Satinover said this, modern science allows us to understand that the underlying nature of an addiction to pornography is chemically nearly identical to a heroin addict. So if if you're in that place now, or you feel like you're getting that place now, listen to this, just saying, I'm going to stop it, is not enough. It's not going to work. A heroin addict cannot simply say, okay, Tuesday, I'm going to stop. There's a chemical dependency that gets developed in the brain, in the heart, in the body for this. It's not unlike traveling through the woods. And the first time you're in the woods, you're going, let's say, to, who knows, to to a lake or a lookout or whatever it is. And there's no path that's been carved in the woods, so to speak, or cut out of the brush. What happens in our brains is we have neuropathways that allows our, our brains to process information. And as we travel through the woods of the internet or, or pornography, and we begin to go to a place and another place, those neuropathways become conditioned to expect that response. And so it's like in the woods when you travel over and over and over and over and over and over and over on the same path, that path gets beaten down and solid and wider and easier to walk on. And that's exactly what happens chemically in our brain. It becomes easier, and actually not just easier, it becomes addictive to walk down that same path over and over and over again. And so it's not just that our hearts kind of go there every now and then, it's that we're developing habits. And when we see 
our spouse, when you see your girlfriend or boyfriend, these same pathways is where your brain has gone down before is where you're going to want to go down too. You're going to fight it. You're going to fight it. This is where we live. This is the reality of, of, of where we find ourselves. The, the impact of pornography and our culture's addiction to an image-driven, sex-saturated society impacts us all, okay? There are some of you here this morning who you're saying, man, I'm glad that's not me, never been down that road, you know, blah, blah, blah. That is very possible. But I just want to say that this impacts all of us. Even if you or your kids never see it, they might marry somebody who's been completely enamored by it. Even if you don't know if someone in your small group or Sunday school class or in your community is impacted by this, you see marriages that begin to have this slight divide of intimacy, emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, that should be consistent in marriage because of the impact of pornography. Pornography impacts our society at large, our community in focus, and our families in particular. It impacts all of us. This is where we live within here. And so the question is, okay, so if it's that broad of a deal, uh, is the end of the world upon us? (laughs) Is this this it? Do we have any hope? And, And the question is obviously, what do I do? What do I do with this reality of what Jesus says? If you, here's the ideal. If you even look at a woman last week who committed adultery, with all the stats that tell us where we live in this broken world, how do I grow from here to here? And I want to suggest a couple of things. First of all, know the problems. Uh, know the problems. And I just want to highlight three things. Number one is access. Um, like never before, truly, like never before. Um, and you know this if you, have a, uh, if you have internet access, particularly if you have a smartphone that goes with you anywhere you go. You know now that like never before, you have constant access to this material. This was not true for our parents' generation. It, it wasn't true. The access here is, is unusual. And, and therefore, it makes sense, particularly as parents and, and even just as men and women, to know how to guard that access. How do I be careful with that access? What guards or filters do I put into my life that help me control the access here? What, what do I do with that? Uh, number two, shame. Here's part of the problem. Part of the big problem, and this is what I mentioned earlier, part of the big problem with this is the deep shame that you feel when you, when you step into pornography. And that sense of, uh, I could never talk to anyone about this. I need to keep it in that quiet room in my life because no one else deals with it. Listen, you just saw the stats, right? We deal with it. We deal with it here. We deal with it, okay? That's a lie. You need to know that. It is a lie that you're the only one dealing with this. That's a lie. You're not. We need to move beyond this shame that comes, and I'll suggest some ways that we can do that, but shame is a part of the problem because it keeps the problem under the surface. And thirdly here, addiction. We've talked about that a little bit, how addiction um, is developed and then it becomes a private addiction that no one else knows about, and I can't even get help because it's too shameful to get help, and then I guess I need to go there again for that chemical response. It becomes a nasty cycle. Secondly, what do I do? Family and personal boundaries. This has to do with the access. Um, 
There are, there are great filters out there right now. I'm talking very simply about um, things like uh, Covenant Eyes or Safe Eyes or Net Nanny or whatever you might want to call it that, that helps kind of guard your computer um, from sites and images that you don't want. It's not perfect, okay? It's not perfect. It's kind of like cutting your eye off or cutting your hand off. It's a system out there, but it can be helpful. I'd recommend keeping your computer and your, fa- your family's computer in a very public place, your TV in a public place. Those who give kids internet access uh, in their own room without any filter or anything, uh, Mark Driscoll used to say it this way, he said, it's like giving a kid a loaded gun and telling him to go somewhere and have fun. It's going gonna, it's gonna to kill him ultimately. If we're giving our kids that kind of access, unfiltered access, and we're just asking for a load of trouble, this is what parents do, they parent through stuff like this. Kids may not like it, but this is what parents do. They help with healthy boundaries, okay? Thirdly is this. I'd like to move away from this idea of sin management. I'd like to move away in our culture, by that I mean our local culture here from sin management, of believing that, that I can tame, I can tame this, just like I can train my dog. My dog keeps, I don't have a dog, but if I had a dog, Dog keeps going to the bathroom in the living room. I'm just going to manage that problem. I'm going to teach it to go outside. And then I did it again. I'm going to teach it again to go outside. Ultimately, over time, I think I can teach the dog to go outside. You can't teach this thing to go outside. It doesn't go outside. Sin doesn't go outside. You can't manage it. You can't manage it yourself. We're not into the business of sin management, of trying to own it and control it and kind of tame it so it plays by our rules. Sin doesn't play by our rules. It overtakes us. Sin sucks life from us. It controls us. We don't control it. And so what do I do? Well, number one, this. We've created an email address just for this, actually. We've created a system whereby you can begin to talk with us. We've created this Simple address. Some of you are emailers, and the idea of calling or talking face-to-face with somebody seems a little bit too much. You need that buffer, and I just maybe need to write down my thoughts. Living in the light at gracepointparadise.com. We tried to make it longer, but that's all the words we could come up with, okay? <laughs> Living in the light at gracepointparadise.com. Here's the deal. Today, 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 you're feeling this. You're hearing this message, and you're thinking, you already know in your heart, I've needed to do something with this for a long time, and I haven't known what to do. There's been no safe place to go. Living in the light at gracepointparadise.com is an email address that will be sent at this point to me and Pastor Joel only. It's a secure email address that way, where you can begin the conversation with us about how in the world do I begin to process this. And listen, there's no shame in this. Let me say that again. Let your heart hear this. There's no shame in this. The shame is when you leave here and think, boy, that's true, that's true, that's true. I feel guilty and bad. I better try harder. That's a shame because you know it's not going to work. You need to bring that stuff into the light, living in the light at gracepointparadise.com. If you're not an emailer, you don't know what a computer is, we have a thing called a phone. You can call the church office. And when you call us, and there's our number for the office up there, when you call us, both Pastor Joel and I have uh, private, secure voicemails. If we're not here, you can leave a voicemail there. No one else can get that uh, except, except us. So there's confidence or security in that, and you can, you can find us there that way. Because here's our hope for you, is that you can begin to see, you can begin to see at the end of the day, if I'm living in this broken world, 
Jesus' ideals are over here. Am I going to meet them? No. But imagine, but imagine. Imagine with me for a minute. What would it be like? What would it be like if we lived in a world where Jesus' ideals marked everything about us? What would it be like to be in a world where a bride and groom walk down that aisle, the bride walks down and meets the groom up here, they're here together, and they know, looking in their eyes, they've been completely pure for one another. What would it look like now for a, a dating couple who be, who's been wrestling with this privately to know that on this day, September 30th, 2012, they made a commitment not a commitment to try harder, but a commitment to live in the light that their heart can be seen by others. That they can go on and get married and walk, see their bride walking down the aisle or the bride see the groom coming in over here and look in their eyes with this sense of, I saved myself for you. What would it look like for our kids not to experience the, the depths of depravity of pornography where they can grow up in the freedom <laughs> of not having to see this stuff, not having to fight the demons within themselves of guilt and shame that you have to fight. What would that, what would that look like? Imagine that. And this is why Jesus puts out this ideal for us. Aim for it, he says. Aim for it. This is the holiness of our God. This is the mercy of our God to give us something to aim for like this. And this is the mercy of our God and the mercy of our community to help us grow together in the space that exists between where we live and what God wants for us. Live in the light, guys. Live in the light. I long for this for you. I long for this for me to be men and women who in community together live in the light, walk together following our Savior. Let's pray together. Our good God and our Heavenly Father, we are We're in a way stopped in our tracks by the content sometimes this morning. Vaguely knowing and being aware that these things exist and it's out there somewhere or thinking, boy, we never talk about this in church and now all of a sudden we did and what do I do? I pray for those this morning who are right on the verge of actually beginning to see victory in this area, who are right on the verge of courage and fear, who are sitting on that fence with one leg straddled over to step into the light and the other leg is still on the dark side, feeling too shameful and too fearful of what might be. Pray for those who think that, well, just getting married will solve the issue or just changing a habit will solve the issue. Pray for those guys. Pray for those girls. Pray for those men and women who are right on the verge 
of stepping in with courage to something that's very fearful, and that is acknowledging our own depravity. So I pray as the the language, the words of this last song that we sing that says, your grace is enough, your grace is enough for me, that that would echo within our heart. Not that my shame is so much, my shame is so much, my shame is so much, but that this refrain replace that. Your grace is enough. And that that refrain gives us the confidence to live in the light. We pray this in Jesus' name.